0: Um, maybe you were wondering, as the passage was read, how are we going to speak on that for half an hour? Don't worry, um, I'll have a go. Uh, we, we are starting a series um, looking, as I said, in the kids' slot from sort of Luke chapter 9, 51 through to about chapter 10 or 11. Um, and So I'll do a bit of looking back and a bit of looking forwards during this to try and raise some of the themes and give you a bit of a, an appetite for where we'll be for the next couple of months or so. Um, let me pray that God would help us. Lord, we do thank you that you you provide for your people, Lord, and so as we seek to, to live for you, you give us your word, you give us your spirit, you give us one another. Provide what we need, Lord, nourish us, feed us, equip us, excite us, encourage us, challenge us, but feed us, we pray, through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. So you're on a roller coaster and you are plummeting down on your journey of existence, on your life. And you do all you can to make some sense of it all, to find some meaning, to find some life, and so you've got arms out either side frantically, you are grabbing stuff and stuffing it in, pushing it into your life, and you grab a, maybe a house and a spouse and maybe some kids and a car and a job and a holiday or two and a computer and a laptop and and why are we doing that because that's what we do isn't it that's what that's what that's the story that's what life seems to be about taking and grabbing and acquiring and experiencing and finding some meaning in a confusing existence and looking after number one and all the while we are plummeting down on our journey of existence trying to ignore the fact that we're moving towards a wall of death life is short we're told. Make it count, we're told. Make the most of your, of your time until we've shuffled off this mortal coil, we're told, until we hit the wall at the end. And we're all making it up. But before you do hit that wall, make sure you live life and don't just exist, we're told. Make sure you squeeze every last drop that you can out of life, we're told. And then a man comes. And he seems to speak with authority and he walks onto the pages of human history and he doesn't sound like the other voices. He doesn't speak in the way that the other voices do and he seems to come with wisdom and kindness and clarity. And he's one who makes promises, and he seems to keep those promises. He's one who seems to have integrity. He's captivating. He's beautiful. And so have a look down at Luke's gospel with me, if you've shut it, and we'll see something of something of where we'll be over the next few weeks, but also something of how we've got here as well. Come with me to chapter 9 first, uh, page 1040, if you have the Burgundy Bible, it's Um, The first verse that Jeremy read for us, 9 verse 51, and there we'll see first point that we are following a crucified king, maybe. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Not many words, but actually so much packed into them there because the the language of taken up in Bible terms is often the language of kingship. It's the idea of coronation. A new king would be lifted up for all to see. And if we'd been reading Luke's gospel, and I recognize we're jumping in at chapter 9, but if we'd been reading Luke's gospel, that might not be unexpected. If we've been reading it carefully, it's, it's the picture that Luke has been painting for us beautifully over the last few chapters. God's king with authority has arrived, and he has authority to put a broken world back together again. And so we, if we knew it, we'd know he has authority to heal those who are suffering. He comes to deal with diseases, but more than that as well, he, he has authority over death too. Authority to, to raise the dead, even. Life within himself that brings life to others. And even more than that, perhaps, he's got authority to grant forgiveness of sins. And for the careful reader of Luke, this picture of Jesus has been sharpening for us. And you know, for the disciples who have been up close and personal with this man, the penny had just dropped at this point in the gospel. They've just got it, so rewind a tiny bit. Page before, um, 9 verse 18. Uh, Once when Jesus was in private praying with his disciples, they were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And they hedged their bets. They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come to life. But what about you, says Jesus? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. That is God's King. But the word authority in our days has a bit of a bad press, doesn't it? We are cynical about leadership. We are twitchy about powerful people in our world. And maybe rightly so. They're the ones who seem to struggle often to govern very well, they seem to not be doing a great job in different situations. Or maybe even they're the ones who use their power for themselves, for their own benefit, their own selfish means. And you see, you hear this word, authority. Jesus comes with authority. The king arrives, and we're not quite sure. What does he want from us? What kind of a king is he going to be? What's in this for him? What's his game plan? down at 9.51 again and see how the verse continues. So as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, lifted up, language of kingship, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Well, that's the capital city. So maybe it's there that he's going to be crowned. It's there that he will take his power. But of course, if you know the Gospels, you know it's not quite the kind of crown that we were expecting. It's not a crown of gold, it's it's a crown of thorns. And it's not going to be a glorious coronation with pomp and ceremony, and he's going to sit on a throne. He's going to be hanging on a cross. That's why they're going to Jerusalem. And again, in one sense, it's not a surprise. Again, rewind it a bit. Middle of the chapter, Go back a page again. Penny drops for Peter. 9 verse 20, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. See, the cross is not a mistake. The cross is the plan. And Jesus hasn't come to clamber up and use his power to to massage his own ego and to feed his own inadequacies and to raise himself up and put us down and put us in our place. No, no, he's come down from a place of eternal glory at the Father's right-hand side, a place of extraordinary honour and safety in one sense that he might pour himself out for us and that we might receive true life and that we might have freedom and actually in Luke's gospel freedom is a really important word from the very start of his public ministry in Galilee in the north Jesus began with these words you might remember he opens the scroll from Isaiah in chapter 4 and he says the spirit of the lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners And recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The King comes. The Messiah's arrived. And what's he come for? He's come to bring us freedom. He's come to bring us life. And there we are on the roller coaster, plummeting down, doing all that we can to make sense of life, finding some meaning. Grabbing and getting tangled up in stuff and house and spouse and kids and car and holiday and a job. And Jesus comes and says, listen to me. Listen to me. Come and follow me. And I will bring you life. Come and follow me and I will give you freedom. And from chapters 4 to 9... He's been right up in the north in Galilee at the very top. And we've seen his authority in different ways. He's proved, if you like, that he can can walk the walk. He's got power. And then for the next 10 chapters, though, from 951 onwards, 150 kilometers of traveling, approximately, from Galilee right up in the north to Jerusalem right down in the south, we are following him. And yet, as we travel with him along the way, we learn what it means to follow him in life. We learn what it means to be disciples. And I'm really excited because I think we will see, as we were sharing with the kids, that he is wonderful. He is worth it. There will be some cost and there will be some complexity and it will be countercultural, but he's worth it. And everyone else is on the roller coaster, grabbing all they can to make sense of life. And yet, as we follow him, we will learn to do things differently. And actually, as we journey with him, rather than looking after self and putting number one first the whole time, we will see that we were created to put him first. And actually, paradoxically, rather like him, if we want to find life, then like the one whom we follow, we will need to lay ours down. Indeed, to gain freedom, we will need to hitch ourselves to him and hold on to him. So dear Maldon Road, my hope and my prayer over the next few months as we journey with Jesus from the north to the south, is that it will almost be as if we will become believers again. And we will encounter him and we'll come to love him afresh again, all over again, follow him again. Because I'm mindful that we need to do that all the time, in one sense. Again and again and again, different ages and stages, different seasons, different challenges, different questions that we might have. And so this is a series for you if you are asking, is he worth following? Can I trust this Jesus? Should I listen to his voice? You're on the roller coaster, perhaps, and you're grabbing all the stuff, and you're thinking, there must be more to life than this. This can't be it. And you're wondering, can I trust him? Maybe it's a first-time decision for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's something you need to wrestle with. Or maybe for many of us who are believers, who are following Christ, we... We need to keep asking those questions. So maybe you are, forgive me for broad generalizations, maybe you're school or university, and you know that following Jesus is costly. It is really costly because it means you will stick out at school. It means you'll be different. It means you might lose friends. You might be excluded. People might not take you seriously. People might assume all kinds of things about you. And you will know the reality of that cost. can I say to you, he is worth it. And I pray that you will see that for the next few months. Maybe you're a bit older, whatever that means. And the questions for you revolve around kind of work stuff or family stuff or house stuff or just expectations of life type stuff. And there's an easy option that you could take where maybe you put you first even. And then there's the more difficult option that you could take where you put him first. So you've got all these questions. What are my expectations of my living standards or the job that I do or the house that I have or the pressure, the schedule, the the relentlessness of life. And so often those things end up kind of dragging you away from him into them. And they seem to kind of promise you life, but actually you find yourselves tangled up in them. And it's just messy, isn't it? Can I say, he is worth it. Listen to him. Maybe you're the empty nester. And the question of how you follow Jesus at this stage is really complicated. You've got loads of time and space on your hands, and you can just kind of exhale a bit, breathe out a bit. And everyone else is filling their empty nesting with projects and house renovations and holidays, and you're looking to him thinking, Lord, how do you want me to fill this time and this space? How do I follow you now? I say, he is worth it. Or maybe you're retired and you want to know how to follow Jesus for the kind of last bit, whatever that means. Yet things might be slowing down a bit. You might find your capacity is a bit less, your pace is a bit less, and everyone else is dreaming of cruising around the caribbean or spending weeks on the golf course or building a house from scratch or skiing or whatever it might be and you know you've got you've got stuff left in the tank and you want to use the last bit well for him you want to steward what you have well what does it mean to follow jesus for you now and again maybe you've got mates and they're slowing down on the roller coaster but they're still grabbing all they can I think there's a wall at the bottom it's my prayer that we would over this series as a church together whoever we are whatever our age and stage and challenge whatever the complexity whatever the season of life we are in we would know what it means to follow him and to keep following him and indeed to know why he is worth it to know that he is wonderful To know something of the beauty and the goodness of our king who is heading to Jerusalem. Why? To die for us. And indeed, we can't help but follow when we see his beauty and his kindness. So first point, following a crucified king. Second point, and I'll be briefer, it will mean opposition. It's striking to me that the very first thing that happens after 9 verse 51, is that they face opposition. Time to be taken up, face towards Jerusalem. And we're not really out of the starting blocks and we thought it was going to be a smooth track perhaps. And suddenly you find there's hurdles and there's water jumps and it's really messy. Verse 52, and he sent messengers on ahead. He went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. So the first stop on the way down from the very north is Samaria. And the Samaritans, again, as you may know, in our day, the Samaritans are a group who particularly seek to help those people who are contemplating suicide. Started by a pastor in London in the 50s. Um, There's an office over on Maldon Road, actually, alongside a couple of hundred others around the UK, and they do a great job. They are well-respected, helping people in need. And yet in Bible times, Samaritans were not well-respected. They were a group in the north, (laughs) And 700 years previously, the Assyrians had come and taken the land, and they had conquered the land, and many were carted off to Assyria as captives, and yet some remained where they were and intermarried with the Assyrians that were there and others who came to be placed there. And so they were some kind of, somewhere in between perhaps, half Jewish, half Gentile, they were seen as having lost their purity, they were unfaithful, they had sort of blended in. They were traitors. They had lost their distinctiveness. And simply put, geographically, they are the first group that Jesus and the disciples meet on the way down south. And you do sense something of the animosity, don't you, towards Jesus and his friends. Why were they not welcomed? Well, because they were heading to Jerusalem. And then we just get this privileged glimpse into the warm pastoral heart of James and John. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? What's going on there? Come on, lads. Um, I want to give you a couple of thoughts as to why it's actually not that crazy idea. Um, It was. But just a couple of thoughts as to why they might have said this. Number one, I wonder if they might have been doing some Bible study and maybe reading their Old Testaments carefully because they would know that the language of calling down fire from heaven is the language of judgment. And actually one place that is particularly evident is in the start of two kings, second kings, King Ahaziah, the king of Samaria, in fact, They're so part of God's people at the time, he had been consulting the Baals, and the prophet Elijah comes and challenges him and says, don't consult Baal, trust God. He will tell you what you need to know. But in that account, 2 Kings 1, you can read it later, fire comes down from heaven and falls on different groups of soldiers. And so maybe James and John know their Bibles, know their geography, and join some dots Maybe that's what's going on. Indeed, maybe it's more than that. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit here. But maybe, 9 verse 51 in Luke, Jesus says, guys, we need to go on the long journey to Jerusalem because it is time for me to be taken up to heaven. And they're scratching their heads going, what is he on about? What is this taken up to heaven? And they're chatting as they walk and they go, hang on, what happened to the prophet Elijah? He was taken up to heaven. Maybe Ah. Oh, there was a chariot. There was fire. I don't know. So maybe they've got Elijah on their mind and they've been digging into First and Second Kings. And so they work out ah, there's stuff going on here. Maybe we need to ask whether we can we should bring fire down. Maybe that's it. Second thing as to why it's not quite that crazy is that, of course, they did expect God's king to come and judge and defeat their enemies. To come and bring righteousness, to come and bring purity, to come and reform religious practices. And so maybe in James and John's mind, the Samaritans are kind of first in line for this reformation that's needed. And, you know, there will be a time for judgment one day. Judgment has been entrusted to the king. The Messiah will come and judge, but James and John has got the timing wrong. His first coming will be about rescue and redemption. And he will go to Jerusalem and he will die on the cross for his people. And the Father's wrath will be taken by the Son and the tomb will be empty and reconciliation will be possible. And that is the rescue plan. And for those who don't trust that plan and who aren't reconciled, he will come again and there will be judgment. And we don't like to hear that, and that makes us feel unpopular, awkward. But you know, the Bible never ducks that reality. So can I say, friends, if you have not trusted Christ, if you have not received him, received the gift of grace in him, received forgiveness had your sins dealt with, today would be an amazing day to do that. Come to him. Trust him. Because one day he will come back and and judge, and that is not a game. So we're saying as well, on the way past, that the Samaritans would receive the gospel. So if we feel that they're a bit hard done by... They they do receive the gospel. You get it in John chapter four with the Samaritan woman, by the well, if you remember her. But more than that, as Luke then spreads out into Acts, his kind of second half of his writing. And what Jesus says, is it one verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we will see that happening in Acts. We will see knees bowed to him. We will see lives transformed. We will see freedom. We will see life received. But do notice the reality of the opposition, though. It's unlikely that we will be opposed by Samaritans in Oxford. But we will be opposed by secular Oxfordians who won't like it. It is striking to me the first thing that happens is opposition, as if Luke wants to kind of get the highlighter out and make us not forget that. Don't miss this, he says. We'll see more with Matt next week of the cost, the priority that Jesus needs to have. Next time he will expand the small print in one sense and stick it in bold and underline it. This is not just a nice thing to do on a Sunday morning. This is not just a hobby. This is about following Jesus. But again, maybe our question at this point is, is he worth it? Because it's painful, isn't it? It's going to be costly at times. If the message is not going to be well received, if opposition is going to come, is he worth it? Again, remember what kind of king he's going to come and be and where he's going and why he's doing it. What kind of king? He's going to be a king. He's going to come and bring you freedom and bring you life. He's the kind of king who has given it all away, who has laid it all down, who's not throwing his weight around for his own self-promotion or for himself but he's the kind of king who took on flesh and stepped into time and space and took on weaknesses and limitations even, that his life might come to you and to me. Where's he going? He's going to Jerusalem. Slow, steady, step by step, hour by hour, day by day, moving towards his death for us, showing us what it means to follow him. And why? Well, I take it because of his extraordinary love for us. And you know, when someone loves you, you know that their love is not cheap, it is costly. It matters. And when we know someone loves us in that way, maybe we'll be more likely to trust them, more likely to follow. But also, why is he doing it? To bring us freedom and life. And there we are on the roller coaster, frantically grabbing what we can and stuffing it in and trying to make sense of this world. But actually just like Jesus, as he lays down his life for us, so we through the daily death to self, the daily laying down of our lives for him, there we find life. There we find the life that we were made for. There we find what it's all about. Friends, trust him. If that situation, that question, that, that thing at the moment, you're trying to work out whether he is trustworthy, have a look at your king and see how wonderful he is. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to follow you. We thank you for the kind of king that you are. Thank you that in love you laid down your life for us. Help us please to keep following, to keep our eyes fixed on you. Lord, even when it's hard, particularly when it's hard, help us to be those who follow you. Convince us afresh, whatever our age and stage, that you are worth following. Whatever our age and stage, that you are good and that we can trust you, that you are wonderful. Lord, and where we face opposition or where it feels like we are counting the cost and We begin to doubt. Help us then to keep our eyes fixed on you. And to know how wonderful you are. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.